Being part of this congregation is a great joy, especially when you see the love for one another that continues to grow among us. And I am grateful, as I told somebody uh, recently, that I get to watch it as well as be a part of it. The Apostle John has been painting a stark contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. And his language is instructive to us. He does so by weaving together timeless truths that we find both in the Old Testament and in the New. The heresies that John was seeking to expose and to oppose marketed themselves as some kind of new insight. The false teachers advancing these new doctrines viewed themselves as superior, superior intellects with higher knowledge than the simpletons that held to Christianity that was preached by Christ and the apostles. As you read John, you start to realize that from century to century, the devil's tactics are largely the same, in part because they work so well with so many but even more because Satan and his children do what they do in keeping with their character. And the same is true of God and his children. They do what they are. So the gospel comes to us always with this focus on the problem is not out there somewhere, and the problem is not first off what we fail to do and what we, what we do that's wrong, although it addresses those things, ultimately the gospel comes to us and says there has to be a change at the very core of who you are, at the heart level, so that even your desires are transformed so that you can truly live for God. John has already underscored that the life patterns of the children of God are righteous because God their Father is righteous. Sinning bothers them. The devil's children, still enslaved to darkness, make a practice of sinning because the devil does the same thing. And righteousness irritates them. This reality naturally leads to John's observations in our passage this morning. Righteousness and love go together. We would expect this because love expresses itself through righteous deeds, whereas sin and hatred go together because hatred expresses itself through sinful deeds. Sin is not just wrong morally. Sin is inherently harmful. And therefore, when I engage in sin, I'm demonstrating hatred for those that are around me as well as toward God. Well, the false teachers wanted to disconnect practical actions from doctrinal beliefs. They were big on knowledge, but dismissive of actions and what those actions reveal about one's true character and identity. And John is arguing that the gospel of Jesus Christ won't let you do that. It never has, and it never will. What you believe, who you are, and what you do are woven together, and you can't really separate them. 
So here in 1 John 3, we're going to focus in this morning on verses 11 through 15 as John pulls this together for us. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides, remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We're going to work through this under these three heads. First off, I want us to take a little time just thinking about the unchanging message of the gospel. We need, we could just kind of gloss over that very quickly, but I think it's really key to protecting us from a lot of falsehood today. And secondly, the contrasting evil of the world in verses 12 through 13, and then finally, the definitive distinction between life and and death. What is it that marks me as one that has life versus one that has death? Well, let's start with this unchanging message of the gospel. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The message is terminology that John has been using throughout his letter. He began his letter talking about what the apostles had proclaimed. Jesus is at the very center of their gospel message, and that, that message is what reconciles us to God through Jesus and also what unites us into a fellowship of believers. In chapter 1, he uses these very words that are here. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Well, what did he say there in chapter 1? Well, God is light, and him is no darkness at all. That's the message. In chapter 2, he reminds us that the commandment to love one another is an old one, even though Christ reiterated it and Christ demonstrated it in what it looks like in real life. And we're going to take that up actually next week when we look at the sacrificial love of Christ. In 1 John 2, 7, he said, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Then verses 9 and 10, whoever says that he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Notice how he's introduced that light and darkness uh, idea at the beginning, and now he's weaving that in. This is what John keeps doing in his book. He introduces us to concepts, and they kind of hang there for a little while, and then later he's going to take the concept. Remember this concept I talked about? Now I'm going to weave it in to what we're talking about now, and that's exactly what he's doing here. Whoever says he's in light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Well, we know, we think about the timelessness of this command, this message. We know that Christ, in Matthew 22, identified the greatest command of all and the second greatest on which hang all the law and the prophets. He draws from Deuteronomy 6 to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This vertical relationship that's going to change everything. And then he draws from Leviticus 19 
the refrain of which is, I am the Lord. In other words, if you love me and you know me, this is how you're going to live toward your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, periodically it would do well for us to go back to Leviticus 19 and, and see what clear back in the days of Moses, what does love actually look like, love for my neighbor actually look like? And you'll find that, that what is laid out there is consistent with what Christ teaches, for instance, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So it's no wonder then that, that Jesus is going to say to his disciples in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's, it's no wonder that in John 17 he's praying that, that there'll be love for one another and there'll be unity, a loving unity among those who are his followers so that the world will know that God has actually sent him and the world will know that God has loved them the way God loved the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So that we should love one another is not some new idea. It's old. We've heard it from the beginning. And any version of so-called Christianity that ignores or distorts this teaching is not really Christianity. It's not from God. It's actually a lie from Satan. When Paul confronts the church in Corinth for how carnal they had become in their prideful factions, following favorite preachers, or their prideful glorying in their particular gifts over other people's gifts, He reminds them that he and the other preachers are just servants. They're just messenger boys. And that God is the one who gives life and growth. He reminds them that every gift of the Spirit is for the benefit of others. And that there is an excellent way to use them, the way of love. This is the message we have heard from the beginning. Paul makes a case that how we use those gifts is more important than the gifts themselves. And that even biblical knowledge that that does not produce loving action is utterly worthless. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, very well known, so beautifully written. You hear it sung at weddings. But let's remind ourselves that that this is exact. if, If we're talking about love, this is what we're talking about. And we're talking about the value of it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and the tongues gift was really, that was like the the number one prize gift in the church of Corinth at the time. But have not love. I am a noisy gong and a, or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then Paul goes on to describe what this genuine love actually looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. In other words, it doesn't keep a list of all the things people have done wrong. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, we live in an age that loves talking and protesting and philosophizing and pointing out the flaws of everyone but ourselves and demonstrating that what and how we think is better than what and how other people think. But our, our culture tends to be a culture of talk without walk. There's nobody so wise in his own eyes as the one who knows a lot but has actually done very little. He knows what's true because he read about it, heard a podcast on it, learned it at school, or is convinced on the basis of how Twitter is trending. One of the best things that can happen to such a person is to be thrown into the deep end of real life and to learn the difference between theory and reality. And when we talk about love, we're talking about reality. We're talking about a response to the world around us, to the people around us that matches reality. We're talking about living in a way that is authentically Christian and, and that the gospel produces. In fact, if it were not for God's love for us, we would have no gospel. If it were not that God loves unlovely people, we would have no gospel. So it stands to reason that if we are people of the gospel, if we're people that have been born again, if we have God's life in us, we have to. We have to live this way. This has to be the character of our lives. The gospel truth John is teaching is not just some new idea or theory. The message of the gospel has never been trendy, nor is it just tradition. It is constant, consistent, unchanging reality, and it is actively practical. The new covenant is rooted in the old. The changes the new covenant brought were predicted by the old. The morality it preaches is the same. Human identity is the same. Human need is the same. Human hope is the same. So beware the fake gospels that say otherwise. It's no wonder that John keeps talking about abiding and staying and remaining. And I want to encourage you. Um, we, we live in a time where we have access to tens of thousands of voices clamoring for our minds and our hearts. I want to encourage you to watch your intake of ideas. Some of us are wired where we're learners. We love to learn. We love to investigate, and that's great. God intends to use that for good. But make sure that God's Word is your chief teacher. The blessed man, the happy man, according to Psalm 1, is the one who instead of listening to the counsel of the ungodly, meditates, chews, savors God's Word day and night. Why does he do that? Because he delights in it. So yes, do your research. Do your surfing Hear, hear what the other voices are saying, but always through the lens, always having first established the foundation of what is actual reality. 
as God has defined it, and it, it will help you navigate. And I, I find this just really practically. I have to be careful as I'm taking stuff in, and I'm trying to be well-informed, and I'm, you know, I want to be connected to the world that I live in. I want to be able to be helpful to it, but I have to, I have to be measuring the effect that what I'm taking in is having on me. And, and there are times that, you know, something I want to know something about where I have to say, okay, I'm done. I'm at least done for now. I cannot, I cannot listen to this anymore. I cannot read further about this anymore because my spirit is shifting into something that is evil. And I, I can't let that happen. And let me just encourage you to do that. Just because you start a book, you don't have to finish it. Just because you start a podcast doesn't mean you have to finish it. And, and the, you know, you've only got so much time in life anyway, so make sure you prioritize where you're spending your time to, to what is really edifying, what is making you more like Jesus. And I just encourage you to be that blessed, happy man of Psalm 1, to be that woman, to be that teenager. Let God be your disciple maker more than any other voice in your life. Well, how do you know when, you're, when things are, when you're not actually listening to God, but you're listening to other voices more? You'll know it as you, as, as you feel that you're becoming alienated from other people or polarized or you find yourself joining in demonizing other people, or feeling hostile toward them, or cynical, or wanting to engage in slander, rather than thinking, how, how can I edify? How can I build up? How can I bring goodness to this? How can I bring health into this poison river how can I actually help somebody else? And, and this applies to, to everything. You know, I try to encourage um, our ninth graders, like, look, you, you, can, you can love your neighbor, like your classmates, like the people that you meet in the hall, by, by actually engaging with them in a way that builds them up rather than tears them down. That, that keeps them on the right path rather than leading them astray. Every one of us have that kind of potential influence. And life is short. And, and if we're wasting it going with the culture of the times where we rip other people all the time or, or where we're always talking and never doing anything, um, you know, even, even the world to some degree realizes that that's a farce. Let them see genuine Christianity that shows itself by love. This is an old commandment, and, and ironically, it actually resonates with, with a whole lot of people. It's part of what draws people to the faith. Contrasting evil of the world, however, we want to keep this in mind. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
So John is going to demonstrate what this command, this message looks like in real life by taking us back to the historical account of Cain and Abel. Remember that, that the narratives in the Scripture, the history that we have there, God has chosen, He has chosen to illustrate for us truth. The Bible doesn't give us a complete history, every single thing that ever happened. It is a chosen history. It's a, a history God is sampling for us in order to instruct us. And that's why John now is going to go to the story of Cain and Abel. Christianity is not just philosophy. It is rooted in historical realities, firsthand testimony to what God has said and what God has done. It, it it impacted the lives of real people in real-life, hard-knock situations. And that's why gospel truth properly translates into real-life living patterns. That's where it came from, and, and that's what it produces. It will stretch you intellectually, to be sure, but it will not stop there. It will change you practically. So let's look at this story of Cain and Abel. Here's the account in Genesis 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And that's the kind of work that he did. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So the very thing that Cain was good at is now being taken away. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. No, I don't know what the mark was. I don't. Um, maybe some kind of force field. Who knows? But I want you to notice that even as God is bringing Cain to accounts, I want you to see his mercy toward Cain. God appeals to Cain. He appeals to him to do what was right so that he would have the same divine commendation that Abel had. In other words, how they were to give offerings clearly had been given to them before. The message of the gospel is consistent through and Cain chose instead something that God had not commanded. Now, the right way for Cain to deal with his guilt would have been to yield 
to what the Lord had instructed. But rather than repenting and doing right, Cain tried to wipe out the one whose righteousness exposed his own wickedness. Even in pronouncing judgment on Cain, God shows him kindness by placing a mark on him that would protect him from being murdered himself. Well, John goes back to Cain's motive, his heart identity that was behind murdering Abel. John says he did it because his own deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous. His murder of his brother Abel demonstrated that he was of, born of the evil one, Satan, whose wicked deeds express Satan's natural hostility to what is good. The sad thing is that Cain never repented. He just went his own way. He followed his heart. The Genesis chapters that follow show that his descendants went along with his pattern, trying to find satisfaction and fulfillment apart from God. The hatred of and alienation from those who called on the Lord continued right to this day. And instead of being a wanderer and a fugitive, he ended up trying to to satisfy the emptiness of his heart by building a city and and getting active with that. Well, 1 John 3.13, John draws the lesson, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Abel had done the right thing, and because he had done the right thing, Cain hated him. Enemies of God like to ridicule the faults and sins of his people, but what bothers them more than when Christians do wrong is when they do right. We strive to do good to all people, to shine out to them the excellency of God, and we grieve. We ought to grieve when we fail to do so. But don't be surprised if the good that you believe and do is what outrages the world most. The world hates the light because light exposes the darkness, and righteous deeds expose sinful ones. So let me ask you this morning, what what is your heart? What is your heart toward other people, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you're sure you're a child of God, in what practical ways does your identity show itself in how you love others? I mean, as you think through your week, the week you just lived, as you look forward to the week you're about to live, how are you, how is what you're doing displaying this kind of love? If this is what you truly are, then don't be shocked when at times you suffer for it. In fact, what does the Scripture say? If we, if we do right and suffer for it, God's glory rests on us, and we should actually rejoice. Remember, the disciples rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. You know, if I suffer because I messed up, if I suffer because I did wrong, there's no glory in that. There's shame in that. But if I do the right thing and then suffer for it, there is glory in that. That's what we are called to do. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he died for it. 
People hated him for it. And if we're following Jesus, it's one way that we carry our cross. We do the right thing, and we're willing to suffer. We're willing to suffer even for doing what's right. Now, if you are realizing that your life pattern, and I'm not talking about how many times you come to services or uh, how many other religious kinds of things that you do, but if you, you're starting to realize, as John talks here, that your life pattern is not one of love toward God's children, and that your life instead is characterized by unrighteous living, you do realize there's hope for you. I mean, listen to the invitations of a merciful God who appealed even to a man like Cain. Stop making yourself king of your life. God is the real king. Christ has poured out his lifeblood to redeem you, to buy you back, to bring you into fellowship with your creator. God's love is for you. But if you will not repent... Remember God's words to Cain, sin's desire is also for you. And like a wild animal, it it is crouching, waiting to devour you. So which life do you want? You're going to serve a master. You're either going to serve sin or righteousness. You're going to serve the devil or you're going to serve God. Which master do you actually want? Which master actually loves you and which master is actually characterized by hatred for you who's just going to use you? Sometimes people think they're free. They, they say no to God. I want to be free. Well, you're, not, you're, you're more of a slave than anybody who ever gave his heart to God. You're a slave to your own sin. You're a slave to the evil one. You're, you're a slave to darkness. You're a slave to, slave to death. What? That's not freedom. That's tragedy of the nth degree. Freedom is to find your way back to the God who created you, who made you in his image, who loves you with an everlasting love. Freedom is becoming the person God created you to be. That's freedom. And there's only one way to have it, and that's through Christ turning your back on trying to be master of your own fate. You do a t- you're a terrible God. I'm a terrible God. I can't do God's job. But to submit myself to God and let him change me. And, may, and maybe you're even thinking, you know, that's just the way I am. I just, I'm not a people person. Well, God's a people person, and if God has your heart, you'll become one. Guaranteed. Gospel truth. God can change you in ways that you can't even imagine. You can't even imagine how different you can be. But God will do the changing as long as you're fighting him. You know, it's like the person that's being rescued from drowning who's fighting the the lifeguard. Just, just, can I say it this way? Just chill and let God rescue you. Stop fighting him. He wants what's best for you. Number three, the definitive distinction between life and death. In other words, what is it that marks those who have life and those that are still in death? We know, verse 14, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone 
who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding him. Do you notice, notice the kind of just like absolute type terms that he uses here? We know whoever, everyone, you know, no murderer. I mean, the, there, there's, there's no middle ground. These words underscore the clear difference, the definitive distinction between those who have life and those who remain in death. Failure to love others marks me as still dominated by death. Love reveals life, and failure to love amounts to hatred, and hatred reveals death. Hatred is the spirit of murder. The difference between murder and killing, for instance, is the heart behind it. Someone can accidentally kill somebody, no harm intended, no hatred in his heart. What makes it murder is, is when that killing rises from a wicked, harmful thinking toward another person. Malice, hatred. This is what makes killing murder. This is the spirit of murder. And that's why Jesus teaches what he does on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We were made to worship God, but real worship of God has to have a a practical, life-permeating kind of effect on us, or the worship is a charade. Whitewashing hatred toward a brother which can be just neglect, with with religious ceremony does not work with God. Nobody can be right with God while they have animosity in their hearts toward a human being made in God's image. You just can't. To murder, to destroy human beings shows hatred for God and whose image they're made. And failure to love one's neighbor expresses a lack of love for God whatever religious rituals one might take part in. I think this is just, this is simple, and yet it's so, per, it's so pervasive, it's so life-permeating that it's, actually, it's hard, too. It's way easier to give my nod to God on Sunday morning and, and check off the box of the religious ritual than to actually say, okay, 24-7, I belong to God, I'm born again, and and my life needs to flow out with love. That's a different proposition. That's way more demanding. In another sense, it's simpler. I don't have to fake it. It's all about yielding to God and letting the Spirit of God lead me. John's words here, we have passed out of death to life, also remind us that every human being but Jesus starts in bondage to death and to sin and to the evil one. But his words also tell us that it doesn't have to be the whole story, that there is hope, that there are those who pass over out of death into life 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And you know who they are by their love for the brothers. Listen to Paul's instruction in Titus 3. I think this has become maybe one of my favorite passages in all the Word of God because of how, how, how it ties theology to, to practical living and how it, it talks about the transformation of heart that God works. In Titus 3, Paul's going to talk about a life of love, what it looks like in the general community, and he's going to tie this transformation from a life of hatred to a life of love to the power of the gospel at work in us. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them, talking about those to whom Titus is preaching, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So, this is changing the way we interact with civil government, with the community at large to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Those are like shocking words that, that call us all. We realize how far we easily drift. For we ourselves, why, why, why should we treat people this way? Not because they're somehow drawing this out of us by their behavior, for we ourselves were once foolish. These are the people we're showing perfect courtesy to. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Notice how he describes what we are by nature. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, things that benefit other people. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul, in Titus 3, is saying the same thing as John is saying in our text this morning. And that is, if you have life from God, the way you treat other people, the way you even think about other people has changed. It's not to say that we are faultlessly sinless. It is to say when we sin against God in this area of loving one another, we feel it, we don't want it, it's contrary to our new nature, and we confess it, we are cleansed from it, and, and we get back on track with living lives that are actually helpful to people. So this morning, this passage naturally calls us to ask the question, who am I? Who is my father? Is it God or is it Satan? Where is my heart? Do I love people? 
or do I neglect them? Am I dismissive of them? Am I condescending toward them? Am I malicious toward them? Do I hate them? Well, Jesus made a way for you and I to escape the darkness, to escape the darkness of our heart, to escape the tyranny of the devil, to be rescued from death itself. Have you received that gift? Have you been given that freedom? Are you living life with love? This is the unchanging message of the gospel. In contrast to the evil of the world, and it gives the definitive distinction between those who have life and those who are still in death. Would you bow your heads for a moment? And before we pray, I, I can't think of a more important thing in, in all the universe for you to deal with than who you actually are before God, where your heart actually is. If you realize that you're still in the darkness, will you not come to the light? This is not about your improving your game. This is about your turning your life over to God for Him to transform you from the inside out. This is what He does with people through Christ. Will you not this day trust Christ alone? to rescue you. You could be that blessed man. You could be that happy woman. You could be that one that brings the light of love into the world of darkness. God, thank you for your overwhelming kindness to us. We were your enemies. We were rebels. We did what we did because we were what we were. Our hearts were full of darkness. But God, you have shined the light of the glorious gospel into our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. In him, we have seen a magnificent love, a love that is willing to die to rescue sinners, a love that breaks the bars of death, a love that at this moment leads him to intercede for us. Oh, God, we want to be his people and the sheep of his pasture. May we, God, show our life by our love. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.